right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up podcast. Solly here. Got an interview coming here with Luke Donald ahead of this week's BMW PGA Championship. He is a two-time winner of that event. We chatted uh, with him about the golf course, the tournament, what makes it special. And of course, I turned things pretty quickly to Ryder Cup. And uh, we talk a lot about his career, not only in the Ryder Cup, but just how he got to num- world number one. Some really interesting insights there. What what the role of a vice captain is, assistant captain, whatever you want to call it. And he will be one of those coming up uh, at Wissing Straits here in just a few weeks. So really enjoyed chatting with Luke. Of course, No Laying Up is brought to you by our friends at Precision Pro Golf. We've been talking about these rangefinders for well over a year now. It is just a great, great product. This, not Ignoring the price, it's a tremendous product. And when you factor in the price, uh, it beats the – I don't want to say it beats all other rangefinders. I, I don't – I'm not fully versed, but what I've always pictured in the price of a rangefinder and seen at other places, this Precision Pro Golf is where you need to be living because the NX9 slope is the best rangefinder I've ever used. You can use coupon code No Laying Up at checkout to receive $25 off the NX9 slope. It's got slope-adjusted distances. It's got a built-in magnetic cart mount. It's got six times magnification, and they offer hands down the best customer service and care package of any rangefinder in the industry. If you need to call them, if you need to email them, if you have any issues, they treat everyone like they're like they're your own son or daughter. I mean, they're, they're, the customer service is incredible. An actual golfer is going to answer the phone. They're going to address whatever issue you have. Not only that, they offer free battery replacement for life on these things, which it will save you a lot of money over many, many years. So add the NX9 slope to your golf bag. Go to precisionprogolf.com. Use coupon code NOLANGUP at checkout for $25 off. Our favorite range finder, the NX9 slope. Swing with confidence. Hit more greens with Precision Pro Golf. Also, Taurus Sauce Season 7 coming up soon this fall. Brought to you by our friends at Precision Pro Golf. Very excited for that, of course. So without any further delay, let's get to Luke Donald. All right, so for golf fans in the U.S., at least me personally, I've always had trouble placing the BMW PGA. What, what is this tournament to you? Why is it special? And don't just say because you've won it twice. <laughs> well, that always helps. <laughs> People always ask me, well, what course is your favorite courses to play? And I always, my, my first cheeky answer is always, well, anywhere I've won. Yeah, I mean, the BMW is equivalent, you know, it's the European Tour's equivalent of the Players' Championship, I'd say. You know, it's kind of their flagship event. They get a very strong field at the headquarters of the European Tour. It even attracts, you know, a few U.S. Tour players now and again. Um, obviously, this this year, clashing up against the Tour Championship, it, it will not really get that many strong U.S. players. But you know, it's, it's our biggest uh, event outside of the majors, the European Tour. So uh, everyone kind of gears up for it. Um, it's a nice purse. It's one of the Rolex series events that Rolex uh, support. Yeah, uh, the players kind of love everything about it. Great hospitality. BMW do a great job on a course that has quite a lot of history. You know, we used to play the, the world match play there back in the day. It's changed a few times over the last 10, 15 years, but, uh, you know, a good challenging Harry kind of cult golf course. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's a, always a fun week. Yeah. I, th- I would say that covers it there. That's a lot of, uh, a lot of things in the, in the, in the yes. <laughs> I can shorten there. my answer. No, that's want. great. That, 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 that's about four of my questions I was going to ask, but you know, we all, every golfer has courses they like for one reason or another, usually just because it fits our playing style or, you know, everyone, I hear the phrase fits my eye a lot, but I, I want to dig in like at the absolute highest level, what takes a golf course from like, Hey, you know, this is pretty good for me to like, no, seriously, this is a great golf course. I can win on this course. And this is just, you know, where, you know, the best, the best, one of the best ones that I would want to compete on. Why is Wentworth one of those for you? And what is it at the highest level that really separates out those courses? Well, I'm not one of the longer hitters. I'm certainly, uh, you know, I'm kind of average to maybe a little bit under average when it comes to distance off the tee. But Wentworth is a course where it doesn't really favor one type of player. There's a few holes that you're hitting irons off the tee for position. Uh, it takes driver out of your hands on, on certain holes. The greens, are, especially since the last redo, are, are kind of sectioned off. So you have to be very precise with your iron play into these greens. The bunkering used to be extremely deep. Uh, when I when I won both my um, BMWs in 11 and 12, 
the bunkering was extremely deep. So, you know, it, it really, if you got into them, you, you had to have good technique to be able to get out properly and, and hit it close. And I think, you know, when, at the height of when I was playing and number one in the world, it was a place where I felt like I had an advantage because, I, because of my good short game. So it's, it's a little bit more of a positional golf course. You don't just bomb driver out everywhere. There are some long holes for, so, for, for sure out there, but there's a lot of holes where it's just kind of put it in the right place, position it, uh, and kind of attack the, the flags um, with some shortish irons. So, yeah, it just feels like a golf course where, you know, I'm not getting totally kind of lost amongst the big hitters which which happens a lot these days so yeah i i enjoyed it and i've obviously been had had a lot of success around that place so um yeah seems seems to fit fit me well yeah i i it was it is safe to assume that distance will come up at some course in, in this podcast but i want to talk uh i'll talk about the european tour and the the development of this uh tour and the the strategic alliance between the pga tour the overall direction of, of where you see things trending as somebody that has played both tours and, and famously won the money list in 2011 on both tours in the same year. Is this something that you kind of wish was, you know, in the works and, and uh, in motion earlier in your career? Because it seems like it's pretty well designed for, I'm still struggling to see how it's all going to play out or I can't quite fully vision, envision how it's going to play out. But what, what are your thoughts so far on the strategic alliance and, and uh, the future of the European tour? Well, I think it, it's a it's a good thing in 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 the end for what's happened the last uh, year and a half, two years. COVID, I think, has kind of sped that process up, and also the uh, emergence of the Premier Golf League, the U.S. Tour, kind of saw that as a uh, a little bit of a threat, and this was a great way to kind of kind of nip that in the bud, uh, so to speak. Really, put an alliance together with the European Tour. Uh, where the European Tour and the US Tour were kind of more on friendly terms and not competing against each other, which kind of was the fact the last, you know, well, since I've been a professional, really, they, they kind of butted heads a little bit. You had to get a lot of releases to go play in, in Europe and, and vice versa. You know, there was a little bit of competition there. Obviously, the US Tour has always been the strongest tour and the place where if you're one of the best players in the world, you want to go play. You want to play against the best players. But uh, the European Tour has, has been great to me. I've loved being a part of both. Both tours offer different things. To have that sense of being able to travel, see different parts of the world, which the European Tour is, is not a European Tour. It's a world tour. I mean, we, we play all over the world. I think traveling to different places and seeing different golf courses, different grasses you know that that's all good for your game in general and uh, to be able to have played both tours was again uh, good for my game and good for my career well and also as a huge huge fan of Lynx golf it makes me optimistic that you know with the the scottish open becoming a co-sanctioned event now and and you know potential i i don't i, I don't fully understand what the development is with the irish open but i do know that you know what some of the money that was used from the purchase of European tour productions or the stake to the tour took in that that's getting funneled to the Irish Open and it feels like we are lined up for some potential a potential link swing if we end up at the right golf courses uh, for those events with the best players on it. I always think it's such a it's I feel like golf fans are getting robbed only seeing the top top players in the game get together one time per year on links golf courses. Do you foresee? That being an issue, I know there's a lot of infrastructure, you know, factors that go into the the golf courses that get chosen for those for those events. But do you see it? Uh, do you do you think that should be a priority in professional golf? Well, I think it's great for for players' development to to you know experience lots of different courses, Parkland, Links. You know, we've got some great Heathland courses around the London area that you know could definitely host some cor- uh, some some great tournaments. Uh, Wentworth is, you know, sort of in that category. But yeah, I think, you know, with the Scottish Open being a co-sanctioned event, you're already starting to link events together on Lynx golf courses where you're going to see more Americans coming over. I think, you know, Ricky Fowler and some of those guys have already come over for the Scottish in the past. But, you know, having a little bit of seeing it that it counts on both tours, that's going to only encourage more and more of the top Americans to come over. So that's a great thing for the European tour. Yeah, I'm not sure where Ireland fits. Again, you know, I, I don't know the ins and outs of everything going on, but uh, I've just kind of read the 
the rough stuff like like you have but uh yeah i think again the the more we you know we've had world golf tournaments that are mostly being played in the u.s exactly. and uh <laughs> it, it it's kind of it would be kind of nice to see the u.s players you know be encouraged a little bit to travel just a little bit more because they're never going to travel a lot because they have so much in the u.s and the u.s tour gives gives them great opportunities, you know, 44, 45 events a year they can play and, and on great courses with great purses. So they don't need to travel, but, you know, I think just getting them out once or twice a year, experiencing different places, uh, more links golf, you know, that's going to be great for the fans and, uh, and great for the game. I would imagine that it's the flight, which you would probably, you know, laugh at as somebody that's played a worldwide schedule for many years. But, you know, it, it, it's a lot for, to, for people to uproot their families and whatnot for extended periods of time in the summer when they have kids and whatnot. But if it's one trip and you're getting to knock out, you know, you're getting FedEx Cup points for it still, which is a, a, an important thing as you get towards the end of that year. Um, and, you know, you get to get to come over to uh, a, a, just a a, a place steeped in golf history. I think that's just a, a tremendous thing for the game. I'm, I'm proud of myself. I made it about 10 minutes before asking about Ryder Cup. Uh, we are, of course, approaching the uh, Whistling Straits 2020 Ryder Cup. It's still being called. But I'm going to start with a question that I, you're probably not expecting. Um, and I, I haven't really chatted about this with somebody at, at your level. But do you think it's time that we at least start exploring uh, – the option that an independent body is in charge of course setup rather than the home team. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, this, you know, the European Tour. It's no no secret. The European Tour. When we have the Ryder Cup in Europe, we set it up a certain way, and and the US when they have it uh, at their home, they set it up a certain way, and it definitely gives a big. Uh, yeah, they set it up in a way to to favor you know their team. Yeah, I mean, you certainly could. I don't know. Does that happen in the in the Presidents Cup too? The PGA Tour is in charge of the setup. It's my to my understanding um, in, in both of those. But so the, they, where I'm so where, they get it both ways. Yeah, where I'm going with that is <laughs> I felt like for better or for worse, the U.S. team learned some from the setup at Medina in terms of. You know that maybe they didn't set up the the final round. They set it up for a potential comeback almost by accident by putting some of the pins in some places. So when they had a lead yeah. in 2016, those pins were smack dab in the middle of the green for singles. And I I don't think I fully understand why that matters in match. Both you know you kind of give it the you know both teams got to play it. I'm wondering if you could kind of explain maybe why that would have had an impact and and how that affects players at the highest level. What, the setup of Medina? Medina, yeah, verse 16, or, you know, it, wh why certain styles give advantages to different teams? So, so Medina, obviously, we were we were 10-6 ten, ten, down, and um, some of the pins coming in were quite difficult hole locations. 17, you know, that back right pin, probably the trickiest pin on 17, 18. We saw how, if you got above the hole, how quick that putt was. I mean, I mean, we're lucky... Yeah, Martin tried to two putt, tried to lag it up there, and 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 Kaima, that is, and and hit it six seven feet by. So it was Americans. I think when you are protecting a lead, you know, and you have tough pin positions, you're going to play a little bit more safe. We had nothing to lose, and so we kind of had that advantage of being a bit more aggressive. Played into our our hands for sure. The PGA of America actually that week was a little bit funny. Uh, Kerry Haig is it mm -hmm. that, that sets up the course you know he he adamantly told us that the U.S. didn't know where the pit the whole locations were going to be for the week and then obviously when uh, we made our comeback and uh, Davis Love was doing his press conference he said uh, we yeah uh, we made a mistake with the whole locations <laughs> <laughs> so um yeah he kind of uh put uh Kerry in an awkward uh, position there <laughs> yeah it kind of backfired on them I, I guess so they obviously learned that lesson because in 16 at Hazeltine right I remember the Europeans I wasn't part of that one but I remember the Europeans complained that every pin location was in the middle of the green so you were either both making birdie or or both making safe pars and it was hard to kind of cut into to Leeds a little bit and uh, they, they struggled to, to make a comeback. So obviously the U.S. Um, figured that one out and, and made the pin locations a lot easier. So, 
Yeah, I mean, it wouldn't be a bad idea. Uh, I don't think the Europeans would mind too much. Uh, obviously, in Paris, though, we, we set the course up very difficult. You know, we made it quite narrow with lots of rough. If you wanted to hit driver, you better have hit it, hit it pretty straight. We did pretty well that week. So, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's just the home advantage that gives, that gives you. You can, you can set it up the way you want. Which made me a little bit surprising that they chose Whistling Straits because that's not a course you can really manipulate that much. Well, um, I think they can make it long, and it's a course that is really driver accuracy not being a huge priority, and and driving distance is a huge priority. And you know, there's the it's wide enough that you know I don't think there's going to be too many guys in the fescue. I don't think they're going to do too much fescue with it. I mean, Medina the rough was real no, short. No, they, they won't have any rough. Yeah, yeah. So it won't be overly manipulated, but I do think, and where I'm going with that is it just feels like, I didn't, 18 was not close, you know, 16 was not very close, 14 was not an overly manipulated setup, I wouldn't say, but it was not close, and 12 was one of the m- closer to neutral setups, and it gave us one of the great Ryder Cups, and I just, I wonder if, you know, if, right. it, if it keeps going extreme and keep trying to one-up each other, then I kind of worry about this thing, just the home field advantage becoming becoming too big, but um I don't know. Was just curious your thoughts on that, and I know, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to get the most out of you in the Ryder Cup without asking you to give too much away of uh, specific strategic moves. Maybe you guys have planned, but what what's a role of an assistant captain? I feel like that role can maybe go underappreciated in the general public. And how how would you describe that role and how it's uh, you'll be em- employing that in the upcoming Ryder Cup and how that worked out for you in 18? Yeah, 18 was my first time as a vice captain. Uh, obviously, I'm a vice captain this year uh, again at uh, Whistling, but uh, it's it's been a good kind of eye opener into what really does go on behind the scenes. There's there's quite a lot more that goes into it than you think. Um, you know, Harrington has selected four so far, and probably another one uh, will be uh, will be named, I think, in the next couple of weeks or just before. Uh, you know, it's it's hard to name them all at once because some players are kind of on the fringe that might might still play well enough to get in. If they don't, then they, they'll probably want to be a part of the, of the Ryder Cup and be a vice captain. So he has four or five, five. We were five last year, uh, two years ago, in or three years ago, I guess now, uh, in in France, and um, he'll have five again. And it, it's a, quite a lot going on for the captain. You know, there's a lot uh, going on. So we have to kind of take away some of that, you know, everything that's going on, take some of the, the pressure off the captain and let him really be concentrate on what he needs to concentrate on. But we're, we're really in, in the behind scenes talking to players. We're talking to them about, you know, potential pairings, who they like, who they don't want to play with. We're talking with, you know, psychologists in terms of, you know, how players match up psychologically. We're we're going into stats deeply, figuring out, does this player play well with this guy? Is he more um, suited to foursomes? You know, we're looking at the course, obviously, they're going to play. You know, how many long irons are we going to hit into these holes? How many short irons? Who are the best at that? How many good, uh, you know, which holes is, if someone tees off for one, is he going to do most of the putting? You know, just lots of little things that go into it. And we all know that it's sometimes just the little things that build up over time that, that can make a difference. And uh, so we're, we're just trying to tick all the boxes and just give our players the kind of best chance. Cumulative effort between vice captains and, and uh, our captain, Paddy. Uh, Paddy Harrington. So uh, yeah, there's there's more more that goes into it than you think, and it's kind of a fun process, just trying to fit all the pieces together. And um, you know, there's definitely going to be things that, even though Paddy has a very uh, active mind, there's going to be things he's going to miss, and that we're going to pick up the slack. And you know, I think that's what we're there for, and to get him tea and sandwiches <laughs> and anything that that they want, you know, uh, for the week, just to just to make things run smoothly. A quick break to check in with our friends at Walker Trolleys. Of course, the Walker Trolley Cape 1.5 is the number one premium push cart in the market. It brings classic style with an ample use of modern technology. It's got, you know, let's get into the specifications of it. The polished aluminum frame, the use of waxed canvas and leather. It's a trolley that stands out all over the golf course. I'm not joking when I say everywhere I go with this this thing. Someone new asked me about it. They ask a million questions. What is the, what's the name of that thing? That's unique. It kind of looks like a stroller. It's not just an outstanding product that makes Walker Trolleys different. The company itself 
prides themselves on outstanding customer service. They're always available by email or phone. It's it's a company of golfers making an outstanding product for golfers. And don't just take our word for it. If you go to walkertrolleys.com, you can read the 143 five-star reviews. Their customers absolutely love this trolley just like we do. And for listeners of this podcast, you can use code NOLANGUP20 to get $20 off your purchase of $100 or more. Just visit walkertrolleys.com if you want to walk the course in style and bring your game to a new level. Let's get back to Luke Donald. Has that process evolved from when you were, you know, playing? You played your first Ryder Cup in two thousand and four. Oh yeah, and, and yeah. Well, how has that process evolved? And, and maybe in the same line of questioning, you know, how did you come up with your foursomes partners back then, or how did the captains come up with it then compared to how it's done now? Again, as a player, I really wasn't really. I, I didn't really have any knowledge about what was going on behind the scenes. You know, there was a little bit of talk from the captain to me. Leading up to it, um, 2004, I was a pick uh, from Bernard Langer. But, you know, I was a little bit uh, kind of wet behind the ears. It was uh, very new for me. I was just going there to try and hopefully play play good golf and kind of got asked a little bit, like, who would you like to play with anyone you don't want to play with? That was about the total of, of it all, really. I was just there to play golf and try and play my best. So. Again, the players aren't caught up too much. You know, someone like a Westwood or Sergio, guys that have been in many, many Ryder Cups, you know, they'll know kind of the ins and outs and will maybe have a little bit more conversation with, with, with the vice captains and captains about certain things. But, you know, most of the players, and especially the rookies, they're, you know, they're going to go in a little bit with blinkers on and just try we just want them to go there and play play good golf so we're not trying to bombard them with a lot of stuff but certainly over the time i think you know a lot has progressed in the terms of statistics what we know what we can track what we we see i think that the mental side is probably something that we haven't done uh probably since uh, 12 or 14 or 16 even that probably would have come into play a little bit more so, you know, every year, it seems like every Ryder Cup, there seems to be, you know, a little more, more cogs to the wheel that's uh, given us a little bit more info. And again, sometimes that info is useful and sometimes it's not. And uh, in the end, we will go a lot with our gut instincts and listen to the players and follow that rather than just go on pure numbers or, you know, this guy shouldn't be playing with this guy because, uh, you know, their personalities don't quite match because... Uh, Sometimes that that's just not the case, is it? I mean, uh, so you, you just have to go through all these little things and then uh, give you a clue and then uh, you use, use it to your best and, and kind of make up uh, the rest from there. Hmm. That's why I'm I'm a I'm very into the numbers and the stats and the analytics and that stuff and I think people can interpret that to say like I just think you should print off the print off the numbers and pair you know just that's the only factor but it really but it's a huge piece of the puzzle right but it it is just a piece in the puzzle of managing you know you know the emotions that come if you're paired with this guy to get you too riled up whatnot but I'm curious for for foursomes or maybe even four ball. Do you want a player, you know, thinking back to you when you were playing in the Ryder Cup, did you want to partner with a similar playing profile, a different playing profile? Did it matter between those two formats? I'm just, I'm always, I'm curious to know the answer to that. I mean, only personally speaking, I, I paired up very well with Sergio. Uh, one, because we were pretty close. We were good friends. So we think there was an ease there when we played together. There was no uh, expectation of letting the other down. But we had quite different games so for us different was was really a benefit you know he was a drove it a little bit longer great iron play but yeah I don't know I mean I was kind of steady uh good putter probably you know if, if one side favored you know the putting that that was probably how we would figure out um who would be on odds or evens but you know, I feel like our games were not really that similar, but we, we just gelled very well together. If I had a bad shot, he put his arm around me and encouraged me. And I kind of, I think, had enough, you know, I knew him well enough from our friendships to, to say the right things to get him motivated too. So, you know, we played five foursomes and, and only lost one with a good good run out there. What uh, I'm not quite sure how to ask this question. I'm going to use examples from 2014, which is, I know, a team you, you were not a part of, but... We had a great interview with Paul McGinley around this time last year where he just chatted about, 
you know, all the things that went into managing the egos of a team and how, you know, he had to make some hard decisions and how he was influenced by how Sam Torrance managed him at the 2002 Ryder Cup and, and that lineage of, of captaincy and, and what he learned in that in terms of, you know, here's the plan. You're going to play with this guy. I need you to play with this guy, and we're going to do this. Versus on the U.S. side, Hunter Mahan also told us a story of how he found out midday he was going to be playing an afternoon, I think, foursome session with Jim Furyk, and they hadn't prepared for it, which seems like two very different ways of approaching a plan. But I want to know, like, especially when it comes to your role as an assistant captain, how tied down to a plan of who's going to play are you, you know, from the start of the week, do you set out like, Hey, for each of the sessions, here's what we're going to do. Or are there a couple like, all right, we may flex this one into this to see how people are planning. And that's why you're out there watching the matches to communicate that to the captain. I'm wondering what you could tell us about, about that process for how it's decided who's going to play, you know, cause some of those decisions get made in a little bit of a pinch, right? While there's still play being made on the golf course, you got to make a decision for who's going out in the afternoon. Yeah. I mean, without giving away too much, oh, I think come we on. will. <laughs> We, we will have a pretty good idea at the beginning of the week, probably who's going to play the first day and the kind of matchups. And then from there, we see how they perform under pressure, how they're performing together, how the game is stacking up under pressure. And then we will adjust accordingly for the, for the second day. I think you can have a pretty good plan for that first Thursday, I think Friday is foursomes in the morning and and, and um, four balls in the afternoon. And, and that will be pretty much, we'll pretty much know what that is by Tuesday or Wednesday, I'm guessing. Thursday by the latest. And, and we'll be week or two weeks before that, we'll be starting to give the guys a kind of a feel. This is what we're thinking, getting used to them. You know, if they're playing a tournament, um, I know in the past we've we've tried to, pair people together just to get them a little bit more comfortable in, in regular tournaments before just so they again create a little bit more chat a little bit more comfort around each other you know again that can go all out the window by the time you know thursday evening roll uh, friday evening rolls around and you have to make those pairings for saturday so uh, again saturday is one where you'll adjust hopefully you don't have to adjust too much and you can kind of go with some good pairings that have performed well on on friday but that's I'm guessing how things will go, but you, you just never know. Golf is, it's fickle and um, thing, things can change, but uh, we're already starting to kind of figure out pairings. Um, you know, obviously the team isn't quite set yet, but we, we have a good idea, you know, roughly who's, who's going to be on that team. So yeah, we're, we're making big strides in, in, in terms of pairings and, 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 and the kind of how we're going to attack it. From an American fan, fan's perspective, I've always felt this, you know, when it comes time to, you know, no matter what, who, the, who the favorite is, you know, what team, who, what, uh, what guys are being rolled out on each team, it, it felt like Europeans were always there to thrive and the Americans were there not to lose. And I felt like they played with a pressure that was just different. And you guys always look like, maybe it's just because you're winning, but you look like you were having fun with it, embracing the pressure, and it, it elevated your play where it was the opposite on the American side. I'm wondering if that is accurate to how you how you felt, how you feel competing in the Ryder Cup and and what you would attribute that to, if, if so. Um, I, 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 I pretty much agree with you. I think Americans are always favorites on paper. I mean, they, they always have, build a stronger team. World rankings-wise, they out-trump us pretty handily most years on the Ryder Cup and that's why we we feel like we're underdogs uh, most of the time you know and I think that can those expectations on the on the U.S. Soldier, uh, shoulders can can weigh on them um, obviously the record in the, for Europe versus U.S. since going back to the mid-80s is very much in favor of Europe and um, I just feel like they feel like they should be winning. They should be winning more. That that record should be more equal or or more to their side. And and that expectation and pressure, again, can can make you feel like you're you're playing not to lose, right? And uh, and that's not a, a great way to uh, a, approach uh, anything in, in life, uh, whether it's golf or whatnot. So yeah, again, we kind of go in there feeling like underdogs, but also loving the pressure of a Ryder Cup and knowing that if we come together as a team that uh, we can be victorious because we, we've shown that in, in the past. So we have 
a great record on our side and we could just kind of play uh, play a little bit freer maybe than the, the U.S. at times. A lot's been made out of some of the relationships between a lot of players on the U.S. side. And while, while not asking you to comment directly on those, uh, there's a tweet going around from Jamie Weir who was saying, so this guy hates this guy, this guy hates this guy. Uh, I, my question in relation to this is how much of an effect can that the personal relationships within the locker room really have? I hear a lot of you know platitudes for, about team chemistry from pundits and, and whatnot, but I don't hear a ton of it from players. And I'm just curious on your perspective there on, you know, when you guys are you know used to competing against each other for so much of your careers coming together, maybe there may be some personal differences, how much of an impact that can actually have on a team? Oh, I mean, again, that's something you kind of want to know going, going into it. Is, is there someone on our team that doesn't particularly get along with someone else? I, I remember actually going back to, 14 and McGinley, Victor Dubisson was on that team, if I'm mistaken, you know, kind of an odd character that really kept to himself. And McGinley thought that, uh, again, I wasn't part of this, but this is the story I heard. McGinley thought that the best way to get the most out of Victor was to have him amongst his two or three friends that he used to hang out with all the time in a different room. He wasn't really even with the team a lot of the time. He was in the team room, but he had his own room too, where he could hang out with his friends, play video games, whatever made him comfortable. And that's what he did. And, um, you know, I think, you know, there's instances like that where you have certain characters that are just, you know, that's how they are. And you kind of need to deal with them. Again, it's dealing with different personalities and egos in the correct way. So knowing all that stuff beforehand, I think is, is, uh, important. And that's why you got to have, you know, good open c communication with the players. If there's any issues then you, you try and get around them before, before the week starts and, uh, you know, put those, put those issues aside. What, what's it like playing against Tiger Woods in a Ryder cup? Well, playing with Tiger is, uh, always an experience. I mean, he, he brings the biggest crowds, the biggest energy, you know, Ryder Cup, non-Ryder Cup, majors, anything. I mean, he's he's the goat, isn't he? He's uh, you feel a little bit more comfortable in a Ryder Cup just because you know his record that wasn't as good for some reason. I'm not sure why, but it's always fun to play with Tiger because you know he's got this all business outlook. You know, he never really chatted too much. It was all focused on how he could get the most out of his game, how he could be as good a partner as he could. Um, he was just very, very steely-eyed and determined, and you could just see how how he performed uh, in his career because of that that attitude, that mental fortitude. Um, you know, and you know, obviously having a partner sometimes wasn't the best thing for him, but uh, managed to win a few games off him, which was... Uh, uh, didn't get much. I didn't didn't get the upper hand much outside of Ryder Cups, but uh, yeah, an aura around him that the Tiger Tiger brings, and uh, yeah, it's not easy to play against. Uh, he has a lot of lot of people supporting him too behind, you know, crowd and, and fans and everyone. So it's 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 a little bit more pressure, a little bit more anxiety, um, but you got to deal with that. Well, I do think I finally emptied my chamber of uh, of Ryder Cup questions, and uh, a, a lot I want to talk to you about about your career in general. And I hate asking such a broad question of you know how did you get to world number one, but if we're looking at the way the game has evolved over the last twenty one uh, twenty years or so, I, I want to unpack essentially how you got there. If I look at your analytics over the years, it's very interesting. You were essentially a, a neutral driver of the ball. I'm assuming you know your driving accuracy, maybe netting out some distance that you were potentially losing to the field, but you hit the heck out of your irons, and you were basically the best putter in the world. And when you spell that out, it doesn't sound like a very unconventional route to number one. But why does that feel so dated now? Well, it's something I'm extremely proud of. And, you know, who knows? I might be kind of one of the last uh, so-called medium short hitters to get to number one. You know, a lot of people thought it would it wasn't really possible even back in 2010, 11. And I remember Nick Price a few years before I got to number one, said, you know, it's just a shame where the game is going. You've got great players like a Luke Donald, who's, you know, I was probably a similar style player to how he played the game. And he admired that, said, you know, someone like him could never get to number one in the world. And obviously I, I did it. And uh, that's probably the, the proudest moment of 
of my golfing career, the best thing I've ever done in the game. But yeah, I mean, statistically, we uh, I worked a lot with Mark Brody um, before he was even really known too much in that strokes game category. And uh, we knew that you had to average, uh, you had to gain two strokes per day on, on, on the field on average for, throughout the year to, to get to number one. There are different ways to do it. The, the easiest way is to hit the ball far. You know, Bryson uh, gains about 1.2 of that too uh, through his driving. Um, you could never do that with putting. I think the most I ever gained on putting was about 0.8, and that was putting the lights out. I mean, like, you know, I think I was number one in the world uh, on strokes game for three years in a row, and the next two years I was third out of, you know, the third in strokes gained putting. So for five years, I was pretty much at the top of the game in putting. And uh, I did it a lot through putting, my wedge play, uh, and pretty good irons. Yeah, my, my driving, as you said, was uh, I wasn't really late losing strokes gained. I was, I was kind of middle of the field. I, I had decent accuracy, but not great length. She got me to about zero, which was about what I was, thought was, was good for me. But I, I gained the rest of the two strokes through great iron play and amazing wedge, short game, and, and, and amazing putting. So it's not the easiest way to do it, but that was the way that I had to do it. Is that, a, is that something that, you know, is just really hard to sustain? Like, I can't imagine, you know, start, you're almost starting from behind, right? On, on almost every hole, you're starting behind, you know, the guys that have the, the distance advantage, right? So you have something you have to overcome day in, day out. Is that something that is mentally taxing in any way or just something that is not, you know, projectable and sustainable for, for more years than you're able to do it? And I, and I say that in terms of you did it for a long, long period of time. This was not a flash in the pan in any way. But, you know, I, I, it just seems like something that I look at even, you know, some of the top players today that are not great, great drivers of the golf ball. I just look at it and wonder how long you can, you know, put it almost perfect and hit irons almost perfect, you know, and that, I'm just curious your perspective on that. Yeah, I mean, at the time, it seemed pretty easy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, everything was kind of uh, in place and uh, seemed, seemed, seemed great. But uh, no, it, it's a little bit difficult. You know, certainly my, you know, 13, 14, I started to not hit the ball as well. And I was really getting frustrated with my swing. I even changed coach. Uh, I wasn't driving it nearly as well as I needed to. And you know, then I felt like I was even putting more pressure on my short game because I was playing defense off the, after my tee shot and really having to rely on my short game and putting too much. And, you know, again, if you keep putting pressure on it and you're having to do it for pars rather than birdies, uh, that's going to wear down, wear, wear on you. It's a, not an easy way to keep up. Certainly the driving it far thing is something if you can do that you kind of always have that um you know driving far and straight is another thing that that's what amazes me about bryson i mean how far he hits it he's extremely straight too for really considering how how, how how much club speed and ball speed he's getting out of it so um but yeah yeah I, for me i wasn't hitting it good enough off the tee where i could be a bit more play offense and you know then I'm having a lot more opportunities for birdies rather than trying to save pars from awkward positions around the greens. And that putting pr constant pressure on you does, does wear you down a little bit. Very few guys in history obviously have been able to, to maintain number one in the world for extended periods of time. And you, you did, I believe, for 56 weeks, something along those lines. Why, why is that? Why is it hard to maintain number one? You know, what's it like playing under that guise? I mean, you train your whole life to improve, improve, improve. Does the mindset change at all when you get to the top? Do you, do you, when do you, you know, when do you, how do you balance like, all right, I need to work on this with like, Hey, there's actually no one in the world that's better than me at this right now. <laughs> I guess there's a little bit of a mental, uh, toughness about that, that, um, you know, you, you aim to, you know, every golfer aspires to be the best in the world. Once you get there, there's a, a little bit of, okay, what now kind of feeling. But that wasn't really the case for me. I Everything seemed to be clicking. Uh, I felt good about my swing. I, I obviously felt invincible from 125 yards and in. I think 2011, I ranked second in par five scoring and, you know, 140th in driving distance. So it, 
I, whatever I did, it didn't matter how far I hit it. I really got a, away from that caring about how far I hit it. Just having that knowledge that um, I, could, I could get up and down. I could make putts when I needed to. Um, my wedge play, I was going to hit it within 10 feet from 130 yards and in, you know, just just uh, all those kind of things you know, gave me a lot of confidence, a lot of momentum. And um, yeah, I, I was working with Dave Allred too at the time who helped me become a little bit more ruthless, a little bit more like, you know, have a little bit more of a chip on my shoulder. You know, I'm this guy that shouldn't be number one in the world and I was there and I just kind of had that dogged style about me and that dogged attitude. And I think that helped too. Um, and that, that kind of prolonged my time at, at number one in the world. So yeah, those, those all factors kind of, kind of helped. Well, what is it, does it work against you when, when your game maybe starts to decline, right? If we're talking about, if we're looking at your career on an arc and, and number one, obviously being the hundred percent mark when you're on your way up to, and you're at that 75% mark, I imagine it's, you know, a strengthening feeling. It's an inspiring feeling. But if you're if you're on the other side of that arc, saying that 75% arc, but past your best golf played, what's that like, right? I mean, there's probably a time in your life where a, like a T8 finish felt really good, and then on the other side of it, a T8 finish didn't feel nearly as good. How do you balance that kind of feeling of like, hey, man, I was number one, and like right now I'm not. How do I get that back? Do, do you, is, it, is it tough to kind of keep the perspective of what good golf is uh, when you reach that high level? Well, I think it's easier if you've been there before, so you know how to do it, how to get there, what it's like, what what the experience was. That's always an advantage in my corner, uh, you know, having people who've never got to the, the top don't really know what it's like. It's hard for them to imagine that. But yeah, golf is just so weird. Like Every week you just feel like you have an opportunity to do well and, and be good. You, you kind of know inside yourself how you're playing how you're feeling and if you're going to have a decent week or not most of the time sometimes that that's not the case sometimes you can practice on tuesday and wednesday and hit it awful and then suddenly thursday comes and something clicks and the, the juices get flowing and you have a great week but you tend to usually kind of feel how you're playing and you know if it's going to be a good week or not but you know saying that each each week i don't know i just feel like I, I don't feel like I'm 43, you know, I feel, I still feel like that I'm, I'm young enough to play well enough. And, you know, if I'm on my game, I'm going to have a, a chance to win. So it hasn't really panned out that way. And uh, golf will definitely uh, kick you in the teeth a lot, but um, I do, I do feel like I'm, I'm making progress and I, you know, a lot of golfers say that, but I really honestly do feel like I'm making progress and that there's still some good years in me and uh, there's no reason why I can't climb back up the world rankings. Not not saying I'll get to number one, but, you know, get back into the top 50, get back into playing majors, get back into, you know, having a chance to maybe play another Ryder Cup. I really believe that that is still a possibility. That answers one of my questions, I think, which is, or maybe it doesn't. I'll ask it still. What, what's your relationship like with the game of golf these days? You know, for, if you do it for this many years, travel this many miles, like, and uh, it, it sounds, it, it seems reasonable to me to have someone kind of, uh, you know, have their love for the game decrease, but it doesn't sound like it based on what you just said. Well, there are times where it beats you up and you, you feel a little bit dejected and demoted, and you know, again, golf. Golf can really kick you in the teeth, but I'm in uh, Rome right now. I'm playing the Italian Open this week and just finished playing a pro-am. And I played with, they were all three of them were disabled. Uh, one was uh, a blind guy. He was a 32 handicap, couldn't see uh, at all. Another guy had a prosthetic arm and was an 18 handicapper. And another guy had cancer of the uh, spine and literally had no feeling on the left side of his body, You know, struggled to walk. And he was a 16 handicapper. And, you know, I, I think sometimes you have a, a, a group like that and you see them enjoying the game and, you know, they're not going to be scratch golfers. But, you know, it puts a little perspective. I'm out here in Rome right now having a chance to play in an Italian Open. A lot of guys struggling to, you know, these mini tours, having a, a tough time of it. Still got great opportunities in front of me. So, you know, there's a lot to be appreciative of. Now, take that stuff to heart that uh, I'm very lucky, very blessed, and uh, I've got great opportunities to still be out here competing and having a chance. 
Is there any point in time where you look back at and say, you know what, at this point, I would do this differently, career-wise, swing-wise, whatever you, you know, something maybe you changed along the way, something you didn't change along the way. Uh, does anything stick out if I, if I ask you that question? I, I really don't think that's a great way to kind of go through life, you sure. know, just kind of looking back in hindsight and stuff. You know, I made the decision at the time the best decision that I wanted to, that I thought was going to give me the best chance. And, and a lot of great things have happened. You know, I've won 15, 16 times around the world, played on four Ryder Cups. Uh, you know, the list goes on. Got to number one in the world. So there's a lot of good decisions that led to some great things. Obviously, you can always look back in hindsight and go, eh, maybe if I did this, uh, things might have been a little bit better. But I don't really think that way. And, you know, I'm, I'm again, if, if I didn't play another tournament again, I'd be pretty happy with what I achieved in the game. Uh, again, going against the odds a little bit uh, for, for someone who plays the game the way I play uh, in, in this this type of, you know, the way the game is played nowadays. Hmm. Were you at your peak? How technical were you? And I'm asking this through the lens of we just had an interview with Harris English who talked about, you know, he came out on tour, played great golf for a long time, but had no idea what made him great. And it took him kind of not not necessarily bottoming out, but losing his game to get in touch with what actually he does in his swing that made him great. And I'm wondering, you know, how your evolution of, of technical thoughts or technical uh, focus has evolved over your years. Yeah, I would say I was a bit more of a field player. Again, I didn't really study the game, the mechanics, biomechanics, all that kind of stuff. I got to Northwestern in 1997. I'd had, you know, a little bit of coaching through the England program. You know, it was a very kind of raw swing, very young kind of swing. Um, Pat Goss was the coach there who became my coach pretty much up until last year. And, you know, I just kind of listened to him. It wasn't very too technical. Uh, we certainly worked on certain things, tried to make my swing a little bit less young, create a little bit more, you know, a little bit more power. I, I, when I came to college in 1997, I weighed 147 pounds. I probably carried the ball 250 uh, with a driver. You know, I had to get more flexible. I had to get a little bit stronger. By the time I left college, I was probably 165 pounds, you know, carrying it 270, 275. So um, he he helped me learn uh, what made me great. Um, he didn't overload me. Uh, I certainly just listened to what he said. I tried to do it. But again, I didn't really have a, big knowledge uh, of how the golf swing worked. And I just trusted what he was telling me was the right things. And I think it made my mind very simple. Uh, I didn't get too bogged down with technical stuff. Um, and to be honest, sometime 13, when I started changing coaches, I started to look into, you know, the swing and how it works and how does this teacher teach and what makes this do this? And, you know, I probably had a lot more thoughts going on in, on my, with my golf game the last uh, six, seven years. And I, I, I'm probably a little bit more of a feel player. You know, I was an art major. I think I used that, that side of the brain a little bit more on the golf course. For me, being a little bit less technical was probably, uh, you know, it's obviously looking at my results, served me, served me the best. It's so hard to, you know, it's, it's hard to... <laughs> channel you know when you play your best golf every level any level every player ever there's so little thinking going on right and when you're not playing your best golf you have to try to think your way out of it and you always are trying to channel like uh just shut your brain off just swing it and be natural and it, it that balance just fascinates me right of you know the absolute peak is going to come from a feel state yet there's so much training and practice that has to go into training your body to be ready to enter that field state under pressure you can't really simulate in practice and uh does does any of what i'm saying make sense in that regard and how do you uh how do you interpret that i think i'm like every golfer that uh yeah maybe i i felt like it was easier to use that you know subconscious artistic side a little bit more that feel side and just let the body do it but there's always times uh when you have you know, I don't think I've ever hit a shot without having some kind of thought of what I want, what I'm trying to accomplish. You know, it might be something very small and I only think about it in the practice swing. And then when I'm over the ball, I just let it go. But I think most golfers will have something internal that they, that they're queuing on to give them an external feel. The guys that have less thoughts, obviously, are usually the people who are 
the most successful i would say yeah the more you can ingrain that stuff in practice and then when it comes to tournament and pressure because your mind does go a little bit blank you know you you forget things when you're on that first tee of a, of a first tournament you better have to rely on your subconscious and the, the practice you've done um otherwise if you're starting to have okay i need to do this this and this to hit this shot then that's that's not going to end up very well so there is a little balance there but yeah in general the guys that can let their subconscious just kind of dictate their shots then i think that's that's always going to pay off for them well a couple more I'll, I'm, I'm probably keeping you from some from some pasta here in the in the very uh short term here but <laughs> pasta pizza yeah <laughs> are you are you up or down money lifetime to michael jordan oh uh i gotta be up <laughs> yeah um how do you handicap matches with him yeah i give him five aside so ten ten okay. in total in the last year he's 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 built his golf course in um south florida the grove grove 23 and um you know he sort of built it a little bit around his game and where the shots fall and he gets quite a lot of shots like at the end of the front nine and quite a lot in the back nine <laughs> in the last few holes so uh he he's tough to play out out there the fairways kind of squeeze in a little bit where the pros a lot a little bit longer so it's a, it's a tough golf course to beat him around there but you know, over the years, I think uh, I'm a pro. I should be beating him, even with a handicap system, because that, that's 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 my game. So uh, he would beat me every time on a basketball court, even with uh, giving me spotting me 18 points up to 21. I think so. Uh, I should have the upper hand. Are those bets settled in cash, or do you have a tab running? I just I'm always curious how that goes. Uh, always cash. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you know, I've never really tried to play him for for big big money. I just I'm I'm good friends with him. That's that's not my gig. You know, some guys are out there trying to win some cash, easy cash, and you know sometimes it backfires and they 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 lose a lot. But you know, for me, it's uh, yeah, I, I might pay him. I you standard bet is like two hundred dollar closeout. Oh, okay. okay. So it's it's not going to break the bank. But it, lately, I think he's feeling like he's getting the advantage. So he. He wants to play for 500 closeout, but uh, so there's a little bit more riding on it. And even 500 bucks, you know, it's your own money. You don't yeah. want to lose that money. So, um, you know, it's not a small amount, but it's it's not certainly going to break the bank. I, I've stopped asking pros the question, would you rather lose a $500 bet or miss a, 10, 000, a, a putt that makes is a $10,000 difference in earnings? And the, everyone's answer. I, it's the five hundred dollar bet. It's it's a totally different. Oh, animal. you hate losing your own money. Oh yeah, reaching into your wallet and having to grab your own money and hand it over. That's that's the worst. Yeah. See, I, I was always picturing duffel bags when it came with Michael Jordan. And if it's okay but with you, the I'm ten thousand you're putting for was never yours in that's the beginning. True. So uh, that's true. Well, I'm gonna let you get out of here. I will wish you luck in this uh, in the Italian Open this week and BMW. Uh, the, this this podcast will be coming out during BMW week. I will not wish you luck as an assistant captain here in the uh, upcoming Ryder Cup as a fan of the American team. But uh, I really appreciate all of your insights into your career and the Ryder Cup process and whatnot. And I uh, wish you the best of luck going forward. And hope to do it again sometime. Well, appreciate. It. Thanks for having me on. You bet. Cheers. Be the right club. Be the right club today. Johnny, yeah. that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. 